You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents Monster Talk can be supported by listeners like you at patreon.com forward slash monster talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Pat Spain is an adventurer, a wildlife biologist, a TV presenter, and now is the author of several new books based on his many exciting experiences hunting for monsters. On the Nat Geo series Beast Hunter, Pat looked for creatures like the Mapinguari and the Orang Pendak and many other mystery creatures that we've talked about on the show. I got a chance to read two of Pat's new books, and I think they'll likely be right up the alley of most of our audience. I hope that we've always been consistent on Monster Talk, that despite our skepticism about most cryptids being real animals, we do applaud serious investigations and field work that look into these stories. Pat's done just that, and along the way he's got many experience points and tons of stories to share, and he was very fun to talk to. So let's get right into the Monster Talk. Tonight we're talking with Pat Spain, who is host of the old Nat Geo cryptozoology adventure series, Beast Hunter. And he's now the author of six new books, and we'll hear more about that shortly. But to be clear, he is not Mark Singer. So we will be tossing out all our questions about working with Kodo and Podo. So Very good. Welcome to Monster Talk. Um, Thank you so much for having me. I was wondering, who am I staring? You put a, a, a picture this Mark Singer guy into the, the dock. I'm like, who, yeah. who the hell is this? I was trying to find one with, <laughs> okay. where he had clothes on. It's so hard. He, he does, 
<laughs> if I was in that good of shape, I probably wouldn't own a shirt either. Thank you for joining us. We want to talk about your new books, but we'd like to start by asking you a little about your TV shows. Sure, and uh, so I've checked out some of these and they're good fun. And uh, I'm wondering, yeah, if you could just tell us a bit about um, the, the shows that you've done in the past and I want to ask you about a particularly memorable scene too. <laughs> sure, definitely. So I've been doing this, I've been doing TV since uh, back in 2003. I started with Animal Planet and I did um, a reality show called King of the Jungle 2. And that got me my first taste of um, wildlife, you know, film filmmaking. And it was something I'd always mm-hmm. wanted to do since I was a little kid. Um, I've been giving these talks when you're, you know, when I, I'd catch every animal I could get my hands on. And when you're the crazy guy standing in the field, you know, holding a rattlesnake, you tend to get a crowd gathered around you. And um, at the time, you know, the biggest audience that I could reach with this kind of enthusiasm for wildlife felt like... TV. So way back in 2003. So I did this rea- this reality show on Animal Planet. Then I started filming my own um, web-based nature show called Nature Calls, and I put it up on YouTube. And I did that for about six years. And then I got um, a few pilots here and there for um, Animal Planet and for Sci-Fi and for a couple other networks. And then finally, um, this show uh, with Nat Geo hit called Beast Hunter. And I did um, a season of that. And then I did some stuff for BBC again, back to Sci-Fi and then a series for Travel Channel called Legend Hunter. And um, and then the pandemic hit. <laughs> yeah. So then I wrote yeah. some books. Some books, yeah, six books in total. Yeah, nice use of your free time. Yeah, yeah. yeah not, I did not yeah, start I, out I, planning to write six books, but um, but sometimes that happens, I guess. That's an incredible feat. So congratulations on that. And I just Thank wanted you. to ask you about the memorable scene, which is doing the rounds on YouTube still, and that is the uh, the scene with the gloves, the the gloves that you wore with the venomous oh, yeah. bullet ants. So if you could tell yes. us a little bit about that, which you do cover um, in one of your books too. Yes, absolutely. So um, the the funny thing about that is, right, it was my idea, first of all. So this was, I had to convince the production company to allow me to do it. Um, We had to go through health and safety meetings, I had to get it cleared, I had to sign my life away a number of times, and still, they weren't going to let me do it. But it was the only way that I felt that I could really show this tribe, the Satare Moe, who I wanted to hear their stories about the Mopping Guari. And uh, they're rightfully hesitant to share any of their, you know, their truth, their stories with outsiders. They haven't been treated very well by the West, as many, many indigenous peoples um, could could share that kind of experience. So I thought the only way that I could really gain their trust was to do something extreme, to show them that I respected their culture and that I could be trusted with their um, their stories. And it seemed like the bullet ants was going to be the way to do that. So uh, when I brought it up, the production company was very, very against it. But after a lot of convincing, a lot of paperwork, uh, (laughs) finally, I I was able to do it. And, oh, man, it was uh, to say it was life changing is uh, is an understatement. I now have a bullet ant tattoo (laughs) and um, I kind of link it back to. So, I mean, it it really, it taught me exactly what your body can go through, Um, just what the the most awful thing that you can possibly experience, um, you know, physically, physically, that um, that your yeah, body can okay. really handle, that was the bullet ants. And uh, right before we filmed it, the producer looked at me and he said, Pat, this is the scene that everyone's going to remember. And he wasn't mm-hmm. wrong. <laughs> oh, boy, everything's a breeze after that. That's right. What, what What is the purpose of the ritual within the tribal community outside of, 
you know, I know obviously it's a, for us, it might be a feat of manhood or endurance or something, but what, what is it within the tribe? Like what, why did they do it? Sure. Yeah. So it's, um, it's, it's, if you want to be a hunter and a hunter is the highest position in their society. So in order to be a hunter, you have to do this ritual 20 times and it's, it's I'm sorry, what? To, yes, <laughs> 20 times. 20, so it, and it's, it's a way to really like prove yourself to prove your dedication to your community and also to show you what you can go through because we're, we're, they're in a pretty harsh environment in, uh, in, in this part of Brazil in the, in the, the rainforest. And if you're out on a hunt and you fall off a cliff or fall out of a tree or get gored by a pig that you're hunting, you may think this is the worst pain I've ever been in and I'm just going to lay down and die unless you've done the bullet dance 20 times, in wow. which case you're going to go, I'm going to walk back to the village. Wow. you got 19 times to go. Oh, man. Yeah, no, I am very. <laughs> and the funny thing is I met a lot of not a lot, but I met quite a few people in the village who had done it once or twice and said, nope, I don't need to be a hunter. That's OK. Yeah. Really? Wow. That's incredible. The venom of those ants is designed to make you never want to hurt one again or That's encounter exactly one. It. And so, yeah. and yeah. I know sometimes, uh, sometimes you get stung by a bee once and you're fine, but the next time you have a terrible allergic reaction. So does, does this ritual kill people sometimes? Yes. So the ritual can potentially kill you, um, and there's two different ways that it could. Uh, one is anaphylaxis, as you that, said, just yeah. like the um, like like a bee, and that it's completely random. So I didn't used to be allergic to poison ivy. Um, I could take poison ivy and rub it all over my face, and nothing would happen. Now I'm allergic to poison ivy, so your allergies can change mm-hmm. very quickly. And um, mm. that's one of the things that really concerned the production company about this was even though I've never shown any. You know, I've, I've never shown any allergy. I've been stung and bitten by just about everything you can think of. Um, there's still no way to tell whether that I will experience this later. Um, and the other way that it kills people mm. is just from the pain. Um, your body can go into shock just from being put in that much trauma and that much pain. And there have been people who have been usually it's when they're surprised, when they don't know that they're going to be stung and then suddenly they are. But people have died just from that shock. Yeah, it it it's a it's very compelling video, but the the way you wrote it up in the Map and Guari book is uh, even deeper and more interesting. I I, I like that. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> thank you very much. Very thank brave. You. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, brave is not the word that many people use. <laughs> <for it. laughs> not, not the it's, word my wife used. It's another brief word, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are other words, but we'll go with brave. Thank you. Thank you. So, so Pat. You really do remind me of uh, Steve Irwin in many ways. Yes, no, that is the greatest compliment that anyone could possibly pay me. Um, Steve Irwin is absolutely a hero of mine and has been since I first saw his shows and followed his career as as closely as um, as closely as anyone I think who who didn't know him personally. But um, everyone yeah, I... I know who's worked with him um, just has nothing but amazing things to say about him. Everyone's got a Steve anecdote or a story or something, and no one has ever said it bad word about him. Um, I know guys that used to supply him with animals for talk shows. And I know people that worked on his crew and people who um, just kind of met him in the industry and everyone loved him. And oh, man, he he was the best. Yeah. yeah, he was a good guy. And I do see the similarities. And I wanted to ask you, what was your closest call with a dangerous animal? Or are we talking about the bullet ants there? 
<laughs> uh, well, I've, I've been bitten and stung by so much. Um, I was bitten by a neotropical <laughs> rattlesnake once, and that is a really oh. nasty. Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really bad venom. It's a mix of hematoxic and neurotoxic. Um, luckily, it was a dry bite. So about 25% of the time that rattlesnakes bite, they don't inject any venom. It's just a warning like, hey, why are you picking me up kind of thing? Um, and I learned my lesson from it. So I, I promised my family that I would never free handle again after that. But um, but I'd say a, ra a rabid raccoon was the worst bite I've ever had because that's the one that definitely would have killed me without medical intervention. Yeah, yeah. Wow, we're, we're dealing with raccoons at the moment here in our house. Uh, they're getting on the roof and the roofs of neighbors as well so oh, that's uh, sorry. my ears just pricked up at that <laughs> yeah yeah the, 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 they can be pretty um, vicious they can and they make the weirdest noises they sound like aliens they're just very strange animals but um the attack by one was not fun <laughs> and all of the shots that followed oh. and uh, you know you know months months of shots and yeah it was uh it was pretty wild but um yeah that was that was the most dangerous because uh, I think there's only been one person in history who's ever survived rabies and uh, they were pretty bad off even though they did survive. So that, that one was scary. Pat just dropped some science news candy there and I wanted to take a second highlight it. In 2004, 15-year-old Gina Giese was rescuing a bat that she had found in her church and it bit her. She didn't seek treatment immediately, and when she got sick a few weeks later, it turned out to be rabies. Up until this very moment in history, rabies had been a 100% guaranteed death sentence. The doctor team at her Wisconsin hospital put her into a medically induced coma and began a cocktail of drug treatments to fight the infection. It took 75 days, and after the treatment, she had to learn to walk and talk again, but she survived. Not only that, but she went on to finish high school and graduate college. And in 2016, she gave birth to twins. Now she has three kids, a husband, and what sounds like a very full life. Dubbed the Milwaukee Protocol, this incredible procedure has given hope to people who otherwise would certainly have died of rabies. Since her amazing recovery, at least 10 other people around the world have averted death by rabies through this challenging and difficult procedure. But this is a good reminder that if you get bit by a wild animal that's behaving oddly, it is much safer to seek rabies treatment immediately. Back to the show. Yikes. Yeah, no, no. And I've watched some of the old medical rabies movies where there's, you know, where they didn't really have any cure and they're just yeah. going through the stages of as these people, you know, uh, lose their co coherent identity and the ability to talk and all the different things that oh it's really horrible horrible oh it's awful Tragic. yeah mm. awful. It, it was such a terrifying disease to to everyone it was just one of those yeah you know you can you, you can kind of understand as a kid watching old yeller is is awful and scarring and horrific but now as an adult you look back yeah. on it you know the way it changes the animal's behavior uh oh, yeah. in the later stages is is also it, it it's uncanny it's like you don't expect deer to be aggressive or, or you know, for animals to just mm -hmm. that would normally run away to come charging at Squirrel. you. Squirrel. Yeah, yeah. It's quite, oh, yeah. quite definitely. disturbing. Yeah. Oh, thanks to Louis Pasteur. 
Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. For so many things, but yes, for that as yeah. well. And beer, and beer. So <laughs> yeah. like people forget how much Louis Pasteur protected our beer. <laughs> Let me ask this: oh, in reading your book, I mean, obviously, uh, the topic of monsters and biology and overlaps of science are, are right up our alley. But one of the things that I thought kind of uh, surprised me. And maybe it shouldn't have because it's Nat Geo, but Karen and I have had some experience doing talking head jobs on TV shows. But you talked about um, part of the crew at Nat Geo included, uh, how does this pronounce? Fact checkers? Is that right? Fact check? <laughs> what, what's that? <laughs> I know. I know. That was that's one of the things. So, so Nat Geo was absolutely my dream job. That was the goal all along. Ever since I started doing wildlife okay. stuff, I wanted to do it for Nat Geo. And one of the reasons is because of just what an amazingly well-respected organization they are. And they lived up to everything that I had ever heard about them. Um, so doing a show about cryptozoology on Nat Geo carries with it some challenges, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> you know, th there's nothing fake about the shows on that whatsoever. And um, anything that I said had to be backed up by um, peer or or expert um, reviewed sources. So uh, there was a few things that I said, you know, I, I went to school for marine biology. I did, you know, a whole bunch of marine biology work and they wouldn't accept me as an expert in marine biology to make my own statements. Wow. And I loved that. I thought that was great because it really, really challenged us and made us, um, I felt like the entire show made it so much better because we couldn't cut corners and we couldn't get away with saying things that were, um, you know, even a hint of not being true. Impressive. It was a lot of fun. It made the editor's job a little trickier, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's the right right thing to do, and and we haven't always seen that with other mm -mm. Uh, networks. Indeed. Oh, for sure. Um, just just TV in general. I mean, everything tends to be sensationalized and, and that sort of thing, and you know. Oh, yeah. I, I, just, I just love the fact that they really, really allowed the production company and I to um, do what we felt was right. And, you know, not only allowed us, but that, that's what they wanted. <laughs> and that oh. was really the great thing was, you know, we um, yeah, we, we couldn't get away with any kind of trickery. <laughs> Fantastic. Very, very impressive. So let's move on and start talking about your books. And I don't know where to begin. I mean, you've got six books. I think perhaps I'll ask you first about the, the one that I was not familiar with, and that's the Manitoba 200,000 Snakes and Cancer. Can you yes. tell us a bit more about that? <laughs> sure, absolutely. So the five books, um, five out of the six make sense. I think that, you know, there's there's five books that are all about a different location and they're kind of starkly funny travel stories from these locations, all centered around a cryptid. And then there's the sixth book, that's the 200,000 Snakes in Manitoba, um, you know, and it's all and, and cancer. And that's, it's kind of the bridge <laughs> is the way that the production company described it. So when I had originally written these books, um, it was one book. And it was about 800 pages long. And the publisher said, that's way too long. And I said, I know, you know, no, that's that's much too big. Um, and they said, OK, we're going to have to cut this back. And as we got into the process of cutting it back, they said, actually, instead of cutting it back, could you write more? And we're going to make this six books. And I said, sure. Wow. So we separated it out and cut it out. And uh, <laughs> A theme throughout all of the books was um, my experience with cancer, because right after filming Beast Hunter, I was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer. And I drew on a lot of the things that I learned in Beast Hunter to um, to survive it, to really come out of it, you know, uh, physically and mentally 
okay. I won't say perfect, but I came out of it okay. And um, that was a, wow. a, a huge part due to Beast Hunter. So this was a, a running theme throughout the book. So what the what the publishers asked me to do was to take all of that stuff out and put it into one book and um, and write just the whole story around that. So uh, what what actually happened is um, after this diagnosis and after spending months in the hospital and a year of chemo and a year recovering, um, when I finally started to feel human again, I wanted to prove to myself that I still was Pat Spain. I still could do these adventures and I could do this stuff. So I convinced a couple of buddies of mine to drive 34 hours up to Manitoba, Canada and lay down in the largest concentration of snakes on earth lay down in a pit with the largest concentration of snakes on earth and film it for YouTube. <laughs> wow. So that, oh, that does not um, do anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that was my, uh, my questionable coping mechanism was to deal with cancer was to lay down in a huge pit of snakes. I, I was misdiagnosed <laughs> for uh, like eight months or more. With, um Just everything you can think of. IBS I mean, Something, oh yeah, yeah, IBS and gluten allergy and potentially this right. and let's try that. Maybe you picked up a parasite. I did pick up a couple parasites. Right. So it was yeah, that, that was a good theory, though, with everything you've gone through. <laughs> yeah. So, so it, I mean, it, it was really like I, I don't fault the doctors at all. I mean, it was an amazing team that, that you know, did this. And I, I was 30 years so old young and, and otherwise healthy. Yeah. yeah. So they finally yeah. did figure it out after a colonoscopy and um, – yeah, it was just, I mean, it was like nothing that I ever expected. And I don't think it really hit me actually until after the surgery and, and until all of the issues that followed, you know, after, after I had the surgery, then I ended up having a secondary infection where they had to put me in an induced coma and open me up from the sternum to the <laughs> just totally exposed, oh opened God. up and, and flush me out for days. Um, and that was oh, really where all the God. problems came from. So... Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel of urine! 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Wow. Yeah. It's all behind you now. It is, yeah, literally and figuratively, right? <laughs> no puns, Blake. <laughs> no puns. So, no. Oh, so the, I, the, I'm the sorry. Do- I'm so sorry. No, no, no. The doctors, the funny thing is, um, I mean, there there is a lot that's funny about it. Like, it's just, it, it, it's it's awful. It was the worst thing that could ever happen to a person. But there, there are things that are objectively funny. And um, one of them is the doctor would come in every day and ask you to rate your pain, you know, multiple times a day. They'd say, what's your pain mm-hmm. on, the, on a level mm-hmm. of one to 10? And, um, you know, they told me after, after I was in there for about a month and I was finally feeling a little bit more, you know, I, I could talk. And um, they, they said, you know, you're our only patient who never gave themselves a 10. They said, we would see you writhing in agony, barely able to speak, like you'd hold up fingers to say what your pain level was. And you only gave yourself a nine a couple times. And I said, yeah, that's because I felt a 10. I know what a 10 is. (laughs) Outside of that. (laughs) So if you're ever wondering, bullet answer a 10, um, having your intestines rupture and go septic is a nine. Wow. Wow. Oh, you poor thing. <laughs> well, but still, why were there 200,000 snakes in Canada? What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> so it's the largest concentration of snakes on earth for for a, a number of reasons. So it's uh, it's about as far north. These are red-sided garter snakes and it's about the furthest north that their range is. So this is about the coldest that they will live. So yeah. um a garter snakes in general have a have a survival strategy over the winter to den together underground. And around here in Massachusetts and in other parts of the U.S., um, you'll get, you know, maybe 20 of them, maybe like 10 to 20 will den together. Um, But as you get further north, the dens might get a little bit larger. Well, up in Manitoba, um, the dens get huge because it gives everything that they need. So by by those large numbers, they get a little bit of they get a little bit of warmth just from body heat. Right. So it can help them to survive that way. There's also limestone dens just underground um, that are below the frost line, and the holes are only big enough to snake for snakes to get in, oh. not any predator. Wow. So they can get down there and survive. And um, when they come out, um, when they first emerge in the spring, there's mates all nearby. So they're looking to mate, and they've all been denning together. So they're right there. They have the opportunity to mate, and there's a ton of food sources very close. After the winter, they're all hungry. They want to eat right away. So all of these factors combined just make it so that all of the snakes within about a 10-mile radius just all come together into this one spot. And it's this one like very small little pit where they all just congregate. And you just walk in and lie down or? Yeah, so I, I got I got special permission from the Canadian government um, to to do this, and um, yeah, and you know I, I told them the idea, and they said anything that'll bring more publicity to this, we're we're all for. We think this would be great because even people who live you know, 15, 20 miles away from it have never heard of it. They don't know that this is there. It's not exactly a, a tourist um, slogan. You can't buy magnets and stuff for the snake dance, even though it is one of their national parks. But uh, but every May, these snakes just emerge in these massive numbers. And for about two weeks, they hang around in these den sites and they go back underground at night and then they come out in the in the daytime, then they go back underground and then eventually they disperse across, you know, however many miles. Do they call this area the garter belt? 
Well, that is what um that's what garter snakes are named after, right? Is garter belts, but <laughs> but they uh the Narcisse snake dens are uh, are the place and I'd read about them when I was a kid and it was something I always wanted to do and um just decided that that was going to be it. <laughs> that was that was how I would t- teach myself that I was back and I could still, you know, be this crazy adventurer. <laughs> You have an impressive bucket list of things. I have a strange bucket list. I do. I have a list of goal species that I want to see. And um, I check them off as I find them. And, you know, it's I, I found one dead. I got to play with one or I saw one in <laughs> Well, I have to say, okay, again, I've only read two of these. So I can only speak to 33% of your work. But I, I think, uh, first of all, your your writing is very easy to read and funny. But uh, I like you. Okay, you're going to appeal to a lot of our audience because uh, we're a very skeptical show that likes to use monsters as a way to talk about science. But you know, I think uh, even though I'm super skeptical about a lot of these monsters existing, I absolutely endorse having a look. I mean, it would be very, very uh, armchair skeptic to just go, nah, that's not real, without actually doing the work. So I appreciate anybody who's able to go out and actually try to see if these things exist uh even in the service of a television show it's it's good because it raises awareness and it gets to talk about some of the stories behind these these creatures uh, yeah, so excellent. uh the excellent. so i think your 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 uh, approach is great uh and it will appeal to a lot of our listeners um thank you so much thank you and, and that really is the approach it really is it's um even beast hunter was never looking to prove whether the animal was real or not it was looking to show um, you know, the, the story of the place and what this animal means to the indigenous people who, who live there and what are the stories, you know, reminiscent of what are they teaching us? What can and what else can we find about this region? And um, I, I loved that approach. And that, that is exactly what I took away from all of it. And I think that it really comes to uh, Darren Nash has a, a great quote where he talks about cryptozoology as being part biology and part anthropology. And that's absolutely how I approach it as well. Yeah, I think so. Fantastic. We, we, Darren's a, a longtime friend of the show. He's he was one of our mm-hmm. early guests. And, Best uh, guests. Yep. Yep. yep so. He's awesome. He's such a good guy. A lot of fun. Uh, I think the first yeah. time he was on, he didn't know how much punning I like to do. So I think <laughs> I caught him a little off guard. But after that, it was great. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> he forgave us. He did. He did. <laughs> 2022, I think one of our themes has been uh, uh, how much can I talk about animal uh, junk? Uh, so, like, this was the year that I learned that roosters don't have penises. <laughs> so, I was, I, it's, it's been really life changing. And uh, then we just got finished doing a, a, a candy roo episode uh, about, uh, you know, oh, yeah. fish swimming up oh. penises. So, uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that, that is, um, that was something I thought about way too often when yeah. I was in the Amazon. <laughs> I think, I, don't, I know, I know how unlikely this is, but on the very, very off chance. <laughs> well, exactly. It, it is, it is to, to a certain mind frame, a horror story for sure. Uh, but, but I couldn't help but notice that in the Orang Pindag <laughs> chapter, oh, yeah. there is yeah. uh, extensive coverage of its unusual usually large uh, ratioed penis. So, yes. uh, I, and I, you, honestly, we don't talk about monster junk enough, do we? So, uh, <laughs> I would agree. Uh, yeah. 
So well, yeah, it, it, it's one of the distinguishing factors, and it's one of the things that I think is left out of a lot of the um, a lot of the you know witness testimonials and stuff. And I think again, it's the embarrassment factor. It's the you know, luckily I don't get embarrassed <laughs> about really anything. Well, is it though? I mean, it could be, but it mean like if a lot of these creatures are are are, are as you know alleged, you know, like uh, Bigfoot's a, a hairy primate. You know, maybe it has like a gorilla style penis where it's not particularly large for its body size. You know, people are often surprised that you can't even tell, you know, I mean, the males have all these other characteristics, but the penis is not one of the ones that really uh, sticks out. So, (laughs) 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 but, uh, but yeah, so the Orient Pendek apparently, according to the witnesses, uh, has uh, substantial or noticeable uh, external male genitalia. Yeah, and it's one of those things that um, really isn't present in the folklore that that I've heard. Um, it was really just from the witnesses, and it was something that one of the one of the gentlemen that we were filming with, uh, Jeremy Holden, who's been an extensive researcher. It's something that he came across randomly, I believe, an, a number of years ago. One of the witnesses very hesitantly told him this. You know, this fact about the, you know, the external genitalia was much larger than they had expected based on gibbons and orangutans and more human and especially in in the, the, the girth, um, you know, not as much the, you know, and the length as well. But so it became something that he would then ask other witnesses and generally, you know, got the same responses that this was something where if they had seen a male creature, then they would be able to describe this. And it was with a lot of hemming and hawing and a lot of, you know, embarrassment. And I can't believe I'm talking about this type of thing. But yeah, um, so it, it became a way to kind of distinguish who potentially really saw a different creature and who is either mistaken or making up a story was to ask them questions about the external genitalia. Yeah. You know, if, if, if it was a male that they believed that they had seen, because this is distinct in non-human primates. The penis is shibboleth. That is so interesting. What- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Yeah, and I mean it is it is a part well, of biology. Pat, there's there's quite a bit, you know. I do. Uh, I think I talk about barnacles as well in there as having a, um, you know, it's six times their own body. Yep, <laughs> barnacles and ducks. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about your findings with the Mongolian deathworm. So the greatest name in all of cryptozoology, the Mongolian deathworm. Um, who doesn't want to know more about that when you hear that term? Um, yes. That's the one. That, oh, that's yeah. the one someone who knows nothing about cryptozoology, you say, oh yeah, I'm looking for the Mongolian death worm. Like, oh my God, tell me more. <laughs> so, and it's a fantastic story. It's um, it's the story of the Gobi Desert. I mean, one of the harshest environments on earth, one of the, the strangest, uh, you know, most alien landscapes that I've ever seen. Walking around in the Gobi, I look down at my feet and there's a nest of dinosaur eggs, just dinosaur eggs right there on the ground like where else can that possibly happen other than in the Gobi desert wow um and it's just the the whole story of the the um mongolian death worm really just has these amazing parallels with the desert itself and i never expected to find you know this this animal that shoots acid out of its mouth and blows itself up and spits hot <laughs> blood and can electrocute its enemies and but i wanted to see where these stories came from because when you really break them down you do find animals that can do all of the things that the deathworm is described as doing just not all in the same creature and not in this region but as i was living with different um, nomadic herders and talking to them about the stories, what I found is that these every story that they had about the death worm really comes down to don't 
don't mess with something that you don't know about and don't mess with nature for no reason. You know, just don't do it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's everyone who got hurt by the death worm is someone who poked it with a stick or threw gasoline on it or tried to light it on fire or tried to step on it. Nobody gets hurt just from looking at it. It's not something that, Mm -hmm. you know, it's when you see it, just leave it alone. Like basically the takeaway is just leave them alone. We we herd animals. Right. Yeah. We need the animals that, you know, we, we love our dogs. We love our goats. We love our sheep. Everything else. Just leave it alone. Yeah. <laughs> Good takeaway. <laughs> yeah. It it always reminded me of the uh, well. First of all, it's, it's it's good to remind listeners these are small. They're not you know sandworms from Dune. You know, but oh right, yeah, but, no, they're they're supposed to be about um, it's the yes, size of a yeah. sheep's stomach, so like twelve yeah. twelve inches about yeah. at most. But you know, things like you would think like spitting cobras or you know the the like there's so many plausible aspects to to explain what seems like nonsense folklore. But, you know, you still need to find the real creature to see if it's real, you know. Um, I don't know. It's a fascinating mm-hmm. story, though. And I, I bet, based on the other it two is. that I, I looked at, that you've got some great travel stories to go with it. There was definitely some amazing moments about Mongolia. Making our own vodka that was uh, based on, or it was Ooh. fermented from mare's, mare's milk. Mare's milk, yeah, yeah. Milk. Um, so you get this, like, cheese-flavored vodka that's served hot, and we drank quite a bit of it. Wow. So there are some wow. good stories from there. <laughs> and doing traditional Mongolian wrestling um, is one of my favorite stories of the entire filming experience because nothing about it went right. Everything that could possibly go wrong did, and it was just hysterical. It was so much fun. I mean, I got I got absolutely destroyed. I had a giant man just completely, he beat me in about two seconds. And then uh, the announcer, this is in front of, you know, I forget how many thousands of, uh, of people have gathered to watch this spectacle. And the announcer, after I got beaten so badly, they had me come out again. And the announcer says something and the crowd just goes absolutely crazy, laughing hysterically. And I found out later what they said was, the American doesn't think he's done his best. So we're going to have him wrestle a child. <laughs> Ow. It's like, oh, perfect, <laughs> perfect. That's pretty funny. Oh. Oh and my wrestle God. a child, I did. <laughs> and he beat me. No! Heartily. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, I have of, to read that one next, then. That... Uh, out of your research, what, what I guess, not, not to spoil anything, but what, what of the creatures do you think is the most plausible uh, caddy, for sure. So the Canadian sea serpent caddy. That is not uh, what I expected you to say. This, <laughs> Okay, go on. So there's so much that we don't know about the depth of the ocean. Um, do I think it's a sea serpent the way that people are describing it with ossicones on top of it? No, I don't. But I do think that there, I mean, I can't think of a single marine biologist that I know personally who would say that we know every animal that lives in the deepest parts of the ocean. There are definitely large animals left to be found there. And it really, it raises the best question in cryptozoology in my mind, and that is, um, will anyone think of it as caddy? So when we find an animal that meets some of the descriptions, if it doesn't meet all of them, it won't be caddy. It's the it's the kind of Yeti paradox, that if somebody finds a new species of bear that seems to walk more upright and eats moss on certain occasions, so it's venturing higher into the mountains than other bear species and yada, 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 they still won't call it the Yeti, even though it 
it fills that void. It says, yes, this is it. And that's really exciting to biologists. But the general public would still say it's not the Yeti because it's not this, you know, primate species. And um, that's the same thing with Caddy, I think. So I absolutely think it's the most likely that it, that there is something behind it. Not most likely. I'm certain that there's something behind wow. it. But when we when we do figure out what that is, I think there are very, very few people who will say, yes, that's Caddy. Bold. Yeah. <laughs> and do you think that's going to be an undiscovered animal or something like maybe eels or some creature that we we know of already? I think more than likely, because um, the, the sightings are all so different. Um, there's probably a number of different animals that are behind all of the sightings. But I think um, some of the ones that we spoke with, uh, some of the people that we talked to, some of the, the most likely scenarios for them would be a different species of squid. Interesting. With the speed that they talk about it moving, with the the way that the you know the neck supposedly comes out of the water, um, all of that really leads me to think of some type of large squid. If if it turns out to be true, I will be so excited. Hey, honestly, that's the thing. It's like you know I'm, I'm Keep our eye on this super one. skeptical about all these monsters being real, but still, uh, you know. Somewhere inside me, the 10-year-old still wants it, you know, real bad to be true. (laughs) Definitely. Same. Same here, for sure. And and that's – I mean, Caddy is the the kind of easiest because – I would be I will be shocked if within the next 10 years we don't find a new species of giant squid. Um, but will no one will call oh. it caddy. And that's kind of the thing that makes it right. really hard. So yeah. of the, the classic monsters that people think of that you can actually point to something and say, if we find this species, then we can say it is X. I think that the, you know, Arenpendek is very likely. Um, I don't know if there are any left. I think that if there are, they're they're older individuals that are still kind of holding barely holding on but may not be there anymore but probably died out very recently and the mapinguari you know uh, i really was shocked to find that there is the chance to have a, a surviving remnant population of giant ground sloth um i don't know if they would still be there but i i think that far later than we believe ground sloths went extinct. They were still in Amazonia. That's it's such a big area. I want it to be true, and I keep you know the new study techniques like environmental DNA are are providing some really interesting stuff. So it's like I don't want the Oring Pendek to be extinct if it's real, and if it's real, I hope that they're able to find evidence using you know more eDNA studies. I, I find them I find them more interesting and powerful than camera traps or all the other sort of things people are throwing at these problems. So, you know, again, uh, high skepticism, but equally high hope. Totally agree. eDNA is is the future for all of this research. I mean, all the work that's being done with it is is absolutely incredible. And um, it's just a matter of time before we find a lot of new, Mm -hmm. really cool, exciting things. And, and Mike Morewood, so uh, Dr. Morewood, who is the the person who found um, the Hobbit, Homo floresiensis, uh, I was able to meet with him um, as we were leaving. We were kind of just flying out of Java, and I got a last-minute interview with him, and neither of us were feeling well. We were both sick, which it actually unfortunately turned out both of us were feeling the effects of cancer for the first time. And oh, my unfortunately, gosh. Mike, Mike did not survive it, um, but he, he was an amazing, amazing man, and he he told me that he sees no reason why the, these creatures couldn't have survived up until you know the 1920s, and he had he had some evidence that was not you know firm enough to publish 
but he did have evidence that there had been survival right up until the 20s. Wow. Interesting. Very. Pat, I've really enjoyed this interview. You have so many amazing stories to tell, and your books are fantastic. I'm definitely a fan. And Thank you so uh, much. We just want to ask you one final question that we ask all of our guests, and that's what's your favorite monster? So my favorite monster, I love it. I would um, I would go back to my childhood and say that my favorite is very, very local to upstate New York. There is a lake called Snyder's Lake, and it's a lake monster called Snidey. Wow. I was a lifeguard at Snyder's Lake for um, a large amount of my childhood and spent even more time swimming in there. And it's this story that I don't I mean, it must have started, my father was in there in the 50s, and he knew the story from then. So it started back, you know, before then. And uh, my grandfather would tell the story from the 20s. So Snidey has been around for a really long time. And it's this supposed giant snapping turtle that um, terrifies all the kids and stops kids from swimming past the dock. And kind of the biggest feat of strength that you can do is to do, do the entire lake. Like if you swim all the way across the lake and back, then you have you're like the ultimate kid, you know, God for a few days <laughs> and you've beaten <laughs> Snidey. So it just brings in all of the best tales about these monsters and lake monsters and it gives you you know possible you know there there probably are big oh, snapping unique. turtles in there <laughs> but um but yeah so i i'd go with snidey as my favorite monster because that that's kind of what got me into a lot of this wow well we just heard about the beast of busco so yeah we, giant snapping turtles are yeah are, are, are the our thing one of our themes for 2022 <laughs> awesome <laughs> to take taking us out of the year i was like <laughs> wow well I, I guess technically this will come out in 2023 because this i think will be our second episode of the year but uh cool. still very cool story well, golly, I, I so when when are these books available? Are they available now? Are they coming out soon? Or w- when can people get them? So um, the six of them are going to be four are being released on January 1st. And then another one is being released February 1st. And the last one is being released March 1st. And I don't remember which ones are which, but they can all be found on Amazon or at your local bookstore. Fantastic. And um, yeah, and, and people can order them if you just look for Pat Spain and um, On the Hunt is the name of the series. Wow, that's really cool. There are so many more topics that you can write about. You could just really continue with the series of these beyond that's- six that's my goal. Yeah, my goal. I, I would love to be able to do uh, expeditions, you know, whether it's for TV or not, and just be able to do them and write about them. So yeah. I have a few more places that I'd really like to go to. I got to when, when my kids are a little bit older, I'll bring them on, uh, on a lot of these adventures. <laughs> nice. Are you going to be doing audio versions? I hope so. So it's something that I spoke with um, with the publisher briefly, but I haven't really delved into. So I would like to do audible ones. Yeah. Um, it's just kind of timing. Thank you so much. Good luck with the book. Thank you. No, this was great. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And the show is awesome. And I love the skeptical approach and the bringing, using monsters as a kind of intro to buy. I mean, that's all the things that I love and that I wanted to do with all of, you know, with these books and with the shows as well. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for contributing to this field. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us and keep in touch with us too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. You guys have a great night. All right. You too. Good night. Monster Dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You've been listening to an interview with author, TV presenter, biologist, and adventurer Pat Spain. The first four books in Pat's new series are available now, and there's an affiliate link in the show notes that will send a few pennies our way if you buy through clicking that link. 
Monster Talks, a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as The Accidental Creative and and The Sit Down. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys, and we really appreciate your making our show a part of your listening life. Thanks. been a Monster House presentation.